0: Hello and welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online Q&A show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of Fire Away. As you know, Fire Away streams online every month and episodes are always available on our YouTube channel, our, our Facebook page, and our website. If you are watching live, we'd be happy to answer your questions, so feel free to either post comments on Facebook or YouTube or tweet to at Rudner Law. Our guest today is Derek Hill of Hill Kindy Practice Sales. Derek is a chartered accountant and a real estate and business broker who started his career as a partner in a public accounting firm. And for the last 35 years, Derek has been providing management, consulting, and practice brokerage services exclusively to the healthcare community. Derek, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Stuart, thank you very much. Delighted to be here.
0: Uh, really glad to have you, Derek. And, and as you know, uh, myself and the team here at Redner Law have been spending a lot of time working with dentists, with healthcare professionals, especially over the last couple of years. And, and as things often happen, this was not something that was really planned. But many years ago, I was, as I was telling you before the show started, talking with someone at a social event who happened to be a dentist. And he was, once he knew I was an employment lawyer, the, the floodgates opened and he started to talk about all of the issues he was having with, having with his staff. And uh, we were able to help him with a bunch of those issues and eventually helped him to sell his practice, which I know is something we're going to be talking about today as well. Uh, But it's become a core focus of our practice here at Rudner Law is working with dentists in particular and healthcare professionals more generally uh, to run their practice and ultimately other buying and selling practices has become a big part of of our practice. Um, So let me start off with a really hard question for you. Maybe you can tell me a bit more about what uh, Hillkindy does and how you guys help
1: people. Well, absolutely, Stuart, thanks. Uh, We're primarily in the brokerage business. Um, uh, We have been in the consulting business, so we've been in the business totally, probably for 35, 40 years. Um, And we're part of a a larger umbrella organization, um, wherein we have uh, a full consulting uh, team. We have a team that does associate recruitment and placement. Uh, We do lease negotiations. Uh, we have a couple of brokerages, actually, across Canada. And uh, uh, we just started a new project in consolidating uh, uh, individual dental practices uh, for uses in corporate dentistry. So we've, we've kind of got fingers in a lot of, a lot of pies. Um, interestingly enough, as it pertains to what we're talking about today, Um, we do a fair bit of seminar work and just did a big symposium on corporate dentistry about two weeks ago. And we asked everybody before the symposium, what keeps them up at night? And interestingly, the resounding answer was staff problems, (laughs) Uh, keeping my staff. And I think the second one was associate problems. Um, And so, you know, what what you're doing fits really well with with what most of the dentists that they see as a huge problem.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of scared to ask a dentist where their pain points are because that just makes people very afraid. But uh, you're right, this is what I'm hearing. Uh, it's associates, it's staff. And, you know, most of the time we have dentists and the ones I work with, they are great at what they do, but they often don't have the time to manage their office, to manage their staff, to deal with the associates. Uh, so they often either ignore it or they pawn off the, those issues on an office manager or someone else but it you know often just ends up snowballing and that's when we come in and we help them deal with those issues and hopefully and what i find generally speaking whether it's a dentist or a doctor or any other business usually we end up coming in when there is a problem and we help them to solve the problem and then when that's all taken care of we can step back and debrief and assess how we could have avoided or at least minimize the damage uh, and that's when we start doing the more proactive work like the contracts and the policies and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm curious if we talked about the symposium and what people were saying. Curious as to what more specifically you're seeing as far as uh, staffing issues that, uh, that dentists are encountering.
1: Well, one of the biggest issues that we see, and it does relate to selling practices, and that that's the whole issue of whether employees have contracts or not. Um, I would guess probably... of practices do not have employment contracts. Um, And so that creates a a fair bit of difficulty when the dentist goes to sell his practice, because uh, in many cases, some of these staff members have been there for a long time. And so they're bringing with them a pretty significant severance liability. Um, And and so there's been different ways that the, the legal profession has dealt with this over the years. Not too long ago, the, the norm was fire everybody. Um, and so the new guy starts with a fresh slate. That got pretty expensive. Um, so now we see situations where maybe for the first three to six months, the parties agree that if they have to terminate somebody, they'll, they'll uh, split the cost 50-50. But that whole process is made so much easier um, if a practice has employment contracts with their staff members. For sure, yeah. I mean, that, sure I mean,
0: that's, oh, I mean that's been a mantra of mine for probably 15 years now. Where I've been telling all of our employer clients and anybody else who will listen to me that you need to have good contracts in place, and you can achieve a lot of things with the contracts. But if there's one thing you want to focus on, it's what you mentioned, severance. Uh, and the reality is, I mean, in Canada, if you don't have a contract. Then severance is governed by a bunch of factors. You look at the person's life with service, you look at their age, you look at their position, the availability of similar employment. And the common myth out there is a month per year. And our courts have said over and over again that that's not the law because they're looking at a whole bunch of factors. But it gives you an idea of the type of, of, or the scope we're looking at. And the reality is that we've got an unofficial cap in Canada of 24 months of severance. We are seeing some cases that are breaking through that now, but let's say 24 months is the cap. If, as you said, Derek, you've got a long-term employee who's been there, let's say, 25 years, they might be entitled to two years of severance if they don't have a good contract. If they have a good contract, that could be as low as eight weeks. So that's a massive difference, and that's that's just one benefit of a good contract. So I've been saying that for years. And the other point I want to make, because a lot of times... Business owners and dentists are, are no different. They think of this as, as, as check boxes. So do you have a contract? Yes, we do. Do you have policies? Yes, we do. They never take the time to assess whether the contracts are any good. As over the last five years, we've had dozens of cases where people have con- challenged contracts, challenged termination clauses. And I don't know the exact stats, but I'd say at least half the time, the, cl- the contracts are found to be not enforceable.
1: Yeah, actually, you bring up a really good point. And just another point, too, that we find is oftentimes the real pain uh, in serving somebody is not always just in the statutory uh, issues. It's in the common law issues, wrongful dismissal, all that sort of stuff. Those can get extremely, um, extremely expensive. Um, And again, we typically like to see, we we tend to start dealing with clients um, three or four years in a perfect world before they actually sell their practices we like to see them get their contracts out of the way early Uh, if somebody comes to us and says i got to sell in six months i know i'm going to get a a contract too we usually say well you might find that that's going to take you longer than six months to get that done Um, so whenever we get a chance and certainly when we do uh, our seminars we have a, a, a big focus on getting these guys to Act on some of that stuff sooner rather than later, for sure. You know, yeah. totally for sure. Yeah,
0: uh, I think that's a great point. And, uh, but the other point, too, is, you know, if it's six months or a year, even two years away, it may not be worth going through the process because the buyer may have their own contracts. And now you're going to have staff. Yeah. yeah, staff get really flustered when they just, you know, they feel like they just signed a new contract and all of a sudden they've got a new buyers so they're already a little bit wary. Are being asked to sign another new contract. So yep. that's, you know, when I'm acting for the buyer, of course, one of the first things I will ask to see are the contracts in place. Um, but in many cases, I'm actually relatively happy if there aren't any, because we can yep. now put our own in.
1: Yeah, for sure. And we're actually finding, um, maybe not so much with employment contracts, but certainly with associate contracts, um, they get out of date really quickly. Uh, Depending on the flavor of the month, that's CRA. Um, And if they're not carefully um, drawn, we had a um, large client about a year ago, probably a dozen practices. And just based on how they had drawn or not updated their associate contracts, CRA decided that there was some HST to be paid um, somewhere in the mix. So they had to write a check right off for about 100 grand. Um, obviously, they went to tax court, but in the interim, CRA is also saying, "Well, we, we really like the hundred grand you just sent us, but how about installments for this year?" So <laughs> they were a couple hundred grand in the hole before they got it resolved, and it was just really a function of a poorly drawn contract.
0: That's actually, actually a great example. I mean, that's the one side of it is is the whole tax CRA issue. The other and more common aspect is what are your obligations as an employer or as an independent contractor. And of course, most associates are independent contractors. Uh, Interestingly though, I'm not sure what you see. I see a lot of hygienists who are also treated as independent contractors. And the reality is in my view, if that was ever challenged, they'd be found to be employees.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a real common myth. Um, uh, And you're absolutely right. I, I don't think you'd have a leg to stand on with CRA. In fact, we were um, we were jointly selling a practice, and uh, the there was there was a dentist and his partner. His partner was uh, an auditor at CRA, hmm. and they got talking about um, just exactly that hygienist. And he said, "Well, that the co broker was saying, well, that shouldn't be a problem because they're independent contractors and yada yada yada." And at which point the uh, the auditor from CRA said. I don't think so, it's not a chance, and so you're absolutely right, there's a big misconception in that area.
0: Yeah, and 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 along with those misconceptions, there's this common view that, well, if they are incorporated, then they can be independent, or if they've signed off on a contract that says they're independent, they're independent, and the reality is CRA doesn't care how the parties characterize their, their relationship, the courts don't care. And, I, and there are lots of cases where both sides go before a judge and say, as far as we're concerned, we're completely independent. The judge doesn't care. The judge is going to look at the reality. And if the reality is that the hygienist is working there five days a week, they have no opportunity to work anywhere else, they are being given the tools of the trade, they're being directed, they're being reviewed, they're being treated like an employee, they are an employee. Absolutely. Uh, and there's just this myth out there, this common view that you can somehow skate around that. And, and what I often tell people is, look, there's a whole bunch of tests. You know, the tests include who owns the tools, whether they have a chance for profit, you know, how much how much over, oversight is there? What it comes down to really is, are they in business for themselves, in which case they are an independent contractor, or are they part of your team? And that's actually one of the things that, that often makes me laugh is the ones, the dental practices that are more tech savvy and have a really nice website, and when you click on our team... And you see the smiling faces of the quote-unquote independent contractors. Yep. You can't. It's very hard to have it both ways.
1: Well, a lot of them, a lot of them are of the opinion that if I work for three or four dentists, two or three dentists, I'm I'm an independent contractor. And and as you say, there's a lot of factors that go into that rule. That's right. really not a major one. Um, I've yet to see a hygienist bring her chair along with her, um, right. her X-ray machine. So she's definitely not using her own tools. So, yeah, it is a it is a problem. You know, and the big problem that we see is there's a reasonable amount of liability that can flow along with that on a practice sale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're just, you know, finishing off a sale or if I'm just the new owner for a couple of years and I have three or four hygienists that have for, say, five or six years have been, you uh, been treating themselves as independent contractors um, there've been no withdrawals made no income tax held back that can add up to a huge amount of money very quickly
0: yeah oh absolutely that's a huge potential liability the other one is you know the, the severance aspect and the interesting thing here is you know if you look at the case law where someone has claimed to be an employee even though they're treated as a contractor usually what happens is they're quite happy to be treated as a contractor throughout the relationship because they get the tax deductions, et cetera. But all of a sudden when the contract is terminated and instead of getting six or eight or 24 months of severance, they get something like 30 days. All of a sudden they say, wait a minute, if I was an employee, I'd be getting all this. So they go see a lawyer and they make the claim. And the classic case uh, was about five years ago now where there was a lady who was selling new homes and she was – treated as a contractor, and I believe it was 18 years. She was paid as an independent contractor, she had her own corporate entity, she even had her own staff. And to me, this was interesting, because to me, I think if you get to the point where you've got your own staff, it's gonna be a stronger argument to say you're independent. Nevertheless, she claimed to be an employee. She went to court, she won, the company appealed, went to the Court of Appeal of Ontario, who found that when you looked at all the factors, the reality was she only worked for that company they gave her all of the tools she needed. They directed her as to how to sell, when to sell, how much to sell for. She was, real in reality, part yep. of their team. Despite the fact that she had her own staff, that she'd been paid as a contractor for 18 years, she was found to have been an employee. And instead of being able to terminate her on 30 days' notice, the company was on the hook for, I believe, was 18 months in that case. So it's another potential liability.
1: Oh, and especially true.
0: if you're buying a practice, that's you may be buying that.
1: And You know, those are some of the things that come out of the woodwork. And, you know, everybody says, well, you know, I've got an indemnification clause. I'm not too worried. And I always say, well, wait a second. You just gave this guy a whole ton of money. He's now in Bermuda golfing all the time. How are you going to get your money back? It's not always just quite so easy, as you might think. We see this um, uh, even more so with associates. Um, The number of practices that don't have associate agreements, uh not only just the revenue Canada issues there but the issues in terms of um you know if you don't if if your associate doesn't have a contract how are you going to stop him from going down the road um okay. setting up across the street and we've seen situations where there have been you know no associate contracts and basically associates walk out with 1500 patients which could be almost all of the practice depending and so, you know, that's a, that's really a huge issue. Um, that's a great point. Yeah. You no, know, we had a client a couple of years ago. He'd had an associate there for about 15 years. No associate contract. Everybody in the office referred to his patients or the patients that he treated as his patients. The patients thought of them as his patients. <laughs> we appraised the practice and if, they had had a contract Um, the practice would have been i think we figured about a million six but virtually no value given that the dentist could have walked to the office next door taken half the practice patients practice would have been left with all the overhead and half the revenue so it's it's uh it's a little bit more tricky even than the staff issue
0: yeah, no, that's a great point and it's a very different contract I and mean, obviously this is a lot of what we do When we're working with our dental clients we have contracts for staff we had very different contracts for associates um, and they cover things like restrictive covenants in other words non compete or non-solicit uh, and the interesting thing again is a lot of people look at this like you know boxes to be checked so we have a contract we have a non-compete we have a non-solicit the reality is and this is a, a surprise to many people Non-competes, generally speaking, are not enforceable. Uh, Courts don't like to restrict anybody's ability to earn a living any more than is reasonably necessary. And that becomes a test is, you know, is this reasonably necessary to protect the, the business, in this case, the dentist's legitimate business interests? And in most cases, the courts will say, look, we're not gonna tell this person they can't work in the industry where they have their training, they have their experience, they have their clients. But, you know, if the reality is that they have the relationship with the patients, will give you essentially a head start. That's what a non solicit is supposed to be. A non solicit is that for three or six or nine months, they will not be allowed to solicit your clients or your patients. You will have the opportunity to solidify that relationship. Uh, But after that time passes, it's open season. So you can't stop them from going down the street or or next door, as you said, Uh, but you can stop them from soliciting your patients for a reasonable period of time. The challenge, as Derek, as I'm sure you've seen this, because I know I've seen it, they don't always have to solicit because what will happen is the patient will call. And now the receptionist says, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith is no longer here. Where is he? Oh, he's nearby, or maybe they don't say, so you go online and find it, but the patients will often follow them, which is when non-competes might be enforceable. If you can go to a court and say, look, a non-solicit was useless because the patients were gonna follow them anyways, then a court will consider enforcing a non-compete as long as it's reasonable. Two years, three years, forget about it. If it's three or six months, you've got an argument.
1: Yeah. No, I, we see this all the time for sure. Um, uh, you know, people have a, a, a non-compete and they think they're fine. We actually have a, a group practice that we've sold a bunch of practices to, they actually get their the hygienists um, in the practices that they're buying, signing non-solicitation agreements before they'll buy. The first time I heard this, I thought, how on earth are you going to get hygienists to sign that for nothing?" And they said, well, we pretty much rely on the goodwill of the of the selling dentist, the vendor to talk his hygienists into it. And they do. Um, it's not a non-compete, it's a non-solicitation, but they won't buy a practice unless the hygienist agree to that. Because really the hygienists are as much a part of the goodwill in many practices as is the dentist.
0: <laughs> yeah, if not more so, I would, I would agree with you on that. Uh, and it's funny, you mentioned the good, they rely upon the goodwill of the dentist. One, a horror story that I saw a couple of years ago now uh, was sale of a dental practice, older dentist who had his team of, let's say, about three associates and about 50 in staff. And in that case, they had negotiated or tried to negotiate who might be on the hook for severance costs. Uh, But what what the buyer did not put into the agreement of purchase and sale. And we weren't involved in that was anything limiting the current owner or the current dentist from increasing staffing costs while they were still the owner. So what happened is about a month before it closed, the dentist gave everybody raises and all of a sudden the new dentist came in and he had budgeted what his monthly costs were gonna be. All of a sudden they were about 130% of that. And he really had no recourse at all in that case.
1: Yeah, I've seen that. Actually, I we just sold a practice that closed a couple months ago and that was that was an issue, absolutely. Um, now the, the vendor said, well, I haven't given my staff raises in a long time and some of them were gonna leave if they didn't get a raise. But the purchaser's saying, wait a second, staff costs jumped like you know, 120% of what they were. What's that all about? And uh, those are tricky things. Those are the kind of things that can put a, push a deal off the rails really quick.
0: Absolutely. And it gets back to one of the points I wanted to make, and we're already about 22 minutes in because, as uh, I said, time flies. Mm-hmm. But this gets back to the point I'm always making to people, which is if whether you're buying or selling a practice, you need to be proactive and make sure that you are protected because there should have been a clause in there. That said, the seller could not increase salaries, wages, et cetera, without the buyer being advised or ideally approving of it.
1: Well, Stuart, okay. you're absolutely right. Just to interject for a second, our nightmare as brokers is when one of the two parties say, oh, yeah, I'm going to use my next-door neighbor as my lawyer. He's been my good friend for the last 20 years, and you just sort of know this is a, a recipe for disaster because there are a lot of unique things that go into uh, the purchase and sale contract of a dental practice and if you're really not familiar with those you find yourself in really significant hot water very quickly and so we always shudder when somebody says no no I'm going to use my best friend as my lawyer and it's like no no please don't do that and in the long run it ends up costing them more money anyways
0: live and learn but i hate to see people learn in that context but i mean the reality is if you're buying or selling a practice you should have a team and you have someone like yourself derek you'd have a very good corporate lawyer who has experience in dental practices but as well you want to have a good employment lawyer and that's what i always tell people is look we're not your one-stop shop we're not going to do the deal uh we're not even going to give you the advice that you guys could give we tend to play a very small role where the client is working with yourself, the client is working with a corporate lawyer, and we're just looking at the employment law issues that can arise. But the worst case is where you don't look at those ahead of time, because I've also seen the situations over and over again where somebody buys a practice and all of a sudden they realize that they don't like, or don't want some of the staff, they've now acquired, as you said before, 17 or 20 years of, of employment service and the severance that goes along with it. They're on the hook for that severance. Um, so like you, you mentioned this really briefly earlier, but I think we should come back to it. It's very common now to negotiate a window of time whereby the buyer can assess the staff and determine if they're going to keep them. And for a limited period, the seller will be on the hook for part of the severance costs and I've seen a sliding scale where it'll be let's say 50 50 for the first three months maybe 70 30 for the next three months you can negotiate whatever is you know open to negotiation but the worst thing that people can do is do nothing and all of a sudden you've got your buyer is on the hook for severance or I saw the flip side and I'm not sure this doesn't happen often but I did see this happen where somebody bought in this case it wasn't even a dental practice it was another business but we had seller who thought they were gonna make a tidy profit and essentially retire and and live a nice life. And all of a sudden they found out about two weeks before it closed that the buyer was not gonna keep any of their staff. They were on the hook for severance. It was gonna eat substantially into their profits, but they never put anything in the contract to to address that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we see that all the time with, with, we call them non-dental lawyers you know lawyers say unlike yourself who've never had any experience with with doing dental deals and it it is can be a very nasty nasty uh and the worst and i've actually had this happen is when somebody decides when a dentist decides he's going to be his own lawyer (laughs) And, and those are probably even worse you you get the contracts which are um you know 15 different fonts uh you know, different margins and, you know, we've got a lot of cutting and pasting going on here and really I've seen those and they they are just absolutely disasters, have cost people tons of money and aggravation and, and uh, it's just not pleasant.
0: It gets back to what I, what I often see and I keep thought, talking about check boxes. People seem to have it in their mind that, oh, I have to have a contract, but they don't understand why. They need to have a contract and what it can mean and to your points they cobble something together and then it costs them a ton of money down the road uh, because they didn't bother to do it properly and often these contracts are either from the states or they're cobbled together from things that are 20 years old or not even dental practices and i mean i know know, you're for non-dental lawyers and i probably would have laughed at that about seven or eight years ago because i assumed you know hr is hr employment law is employment law and like i said i got you know end up working with a dentist who referred me to other dentists and now it's a big part of our practice and I now understand the terminology and I understand the unique issues that exist yeah. and you're right it's very different than other types of businesses so you need someone who has that expertise
1: oh absolutely absolutely no question um, yeah we I mean we've basically seen one or two deals fall off the rails because somebody was insisted on using you know, their next door neighbor. Um, and we've seen it cost people hundreds, quite literally. We had one deal. It was a very large deal, but it cost the guy about $400,000, the seller, um, just because it wasn't done right. just crazy.
0: It, it is crazy. And the reality is, how much do he sell? How much, sorry, how much he save by not doing it right? Five or 10,000? Well, you know, the
1: interesting thing, that in this particular case... It was a nine million dollar practice, which is a pretty large practice, um, and it wasn't done right, and it cost them four hundred grand. And it's like, you know, that's a deal that should have cost maybe thirty, forty thousand dollars in legal fees to do right. Mm-hmm. And because it wasn't done right, it cost them a ton of money. Right, crazy.
0: No, know There's an old saying of penny wise and pound foolish, and that's. A- perfect example of it uh, yeah i see i see it in every industry it's not just just dentists but uh there are some unique in- issues in the dental industry that arise and, and a lot of it is you know, like we've been saying a lot of the goodwill is with not the dentist but it's with the hygienists or the staff so you know sometimes it's easier for someone to come in and say well i'll just clean house and bring my own staff in but if you do that you're often getting rid of half the goodwill at the same time
1: sure and and you know, sometimes it's the personality of a dentist. Whenever I run into a dentist and he says, Oh, yeah, I had such a staff problem, they were all disasters, I had to get rid of them all. And you sort of look at the dentist and say, Well, you know, maybe this problem wasn't the staff, maybe the problem was the dentist. But, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it happens a lot. And it doesn't need to, that's the whole
0: well, on the, look, it gets back to the planning, and this I know I'm going to have my, my chance in a couple of minutes to, uh, to, to fire away myself, and it's one of the things I'm going to talk about is being proactive and making sure your interests are covered before the deal is anywhere near closing, turning your mind to these issues beforehand, A, what's going to happen to the staff, and B, where you know who's going to be on the hook for any cost? Is it the buyer? Is it the seller? Or is it some combination of the two? But you've got to turn your mind to it, especially in in the context of a dental practice. So.
1: sure. And Stuart, that's why we like to work with clients minimum of three years before they're going to sell, because a lot of the changes that they need to make, you know, particularly if their tax law is involved, it takes a little while for it to percolate through the system and become effective. You know, it's like, um, you know, like redoing associate agreements or or employment contracts or whatever. It's not something that just can happen overnight,
0: Hmm.
1: you know. Um, we spend actually a lot of our time Is kind of a phrase that we have is, you know, fix it before you sell it. Um, and, and we find that oftentimes that these guys will fix their practices. They can sell them for a lot more than what they're worth when they initially bring them to us. But if you're going to the marketplace, you've got awesome associate agreements, awesome employment agreements. You're dealing with a dental lawyer. You're going to get a much better value for your practice than if you don't do any of that stuff and use your next door neighbor.
0: Oh, that's for sure. Horrible. And when, when we're acting for the buyer, that's, as I said, the first thing I'll look at are the contracts, and then I'll probably look at the policies as well. But as soon as I see good contracts, I'll say, look, you know, this is worth paying a bit of a premium for because you're going to save money on the back end. So you're you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, totally for sure. And that and that goes whether it's the employment law part of the process or whether it's the actual you know, purchase and sale um, structuring—it—it it, kind of goes across the whole board. I mean, we often say, you know, you need really an excellent accountant from day one. You might not—you might not need, a, a, you know, a dental lawyer day one, but you certainly need them before, you know, the last day, or you know, before the last year, you know. They need to be in there somewhere for sure. I mean, even just structuring, you'd be amazed at the number of practices that we see that have one professional corporation with three or four practices in it. It's a nightmare to sell.
0: Interesting. And that's where you need a, a corporate lawyer with the expertise to actually put things in place because you're Absolutely. right, potential Absolutely. buyers are going to look at that. And if they have the choice of that or another practice, then they're just going to go to the other practice. Yeah. As I, uh, we're after one o'clock, so okay. I, will, uh, I will wrap it up now. But, Derek, thank you. And as we said the other day, I think there's easily enough talk, uh, enough um, that we can talk about to do this again. So, I'd love to do it again soon. But, uh, thank you for taking the time. And just so everyone knows, if you want to learn more about uh, Derek and Hillkindy generally, it's www.hillkindy, which is k i n d y dot com. Uh, but, Derek, thanks again for doing this.
1: Thanks, Stuart. It's been my pleasure.
0: So that's all the time we have for Season 2, Episode 9 of Fire Away. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Derek Hill, I want to thank you very much for joining me for a great conversation all about buying and selling dental practices, which has become a significant part of our, our practice here at Render Law. Our next episode will air on Tuesday, November 19th. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at info at Reminder that past episodes can always be found on YouTube. On our website and on Facebook, and hopefully as well on LinkedIn, which we are now uh, experimenting with. And you should be able to watch Fireway on LinkedIn as well. Uh, please remember to subscribe to our newsletter so you'll get notifications of all of our events. I will invite you to keep in touch with Redner Law throughout the month. Check out our blog, check out our social media, sign up for our newsletter again. But the usual warning none of that replaces legal advice. And as I always say, if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Um, Finally, thanks to Rob. Thanks to Rebecca and to Mark for helping put the show together. Thanks again to Derek. Thanks for tuning in again, and we'll see you soon.